In September 2013, Alan Foster took off from Atlanta, Georgia. He was headed home to Anchorage, Alaska, which meant he had almost 4,000 miles to break in his new single-engine plane. It would be a long journey, but Alan was a pro. He flew air taxis and commuter planes all the time. After several hours in the air, he touched down in a small Alaskan fishing village called Yakutat. He refueled, stretched his legs, then climbed back to cruising altitude. He had another 360 miles to go till he was home. Alan knew there was rough air ahead, so he radioed Juno Flight Services for a weather update. He wanted to know if he should stop again somewhere along the way. 18 minutes later, a radar picked up a signal along Alan's route. At some point after that, he passed another small plane. The pilot radioed Alan. The weather around Anchorage was pretty gnarly. Alan responded that he'd keep going. But he never made it home. Instead, Alan and his plane became the latest victims of the notorious Alaska Triangle. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Alaska Triangle. For most of its history, this region was known for its rugged terrain and mesmerizing beauty. But starting in the 1950s, it earned a new reputation as one of the most doomed places in the country. Today, we'll examine the strange disappearances that plagued the area for over 70 years. With each new tragedy, heartbroken family members and amateur detectives sought explanations, ranging from strange weather patterns to government cover-ups. Next time, we'll dig deeper into the possible explanations about the Alaska Triangle. Enthusiasts have proposed ideas about UFOs and shape-shifting otters, but it's possible the simplest explanation is the most terrifying, irreversible climate change. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. We've all heard about the Bermuda Triangle by now. But what if we told you there's another, maybe even spookier zone out there? It's called the Alaska Triangle. It extends from the capital of Juneau in the southeast, west to Anchorage, and all the way north to Utkiavik. The Alaska Triangle covers about 186,000 square miles, making it bigger than California. The terrain is rugged in every sense of the word, with immense forests, expansive wilderness, and insurmountable peaks. It's the kind of place where one wrong move could mean the difference between life and death. Where decades-old secrets are buried under a thick layer of snow and ice. When pilot Alan Foster went missing in 2013, he joined a long list of people who'd vanished in the Alaska Triangle. One of the first known cases remains an open mystery today. In January 1950, a United States Air Force Douglas C-54 Skymaster took off from Anchorage. Its destination was Great Falls, Montana. There were 44 people on board, eight crew members, 34 military officials, and two civilians. About two hours after takeoff, the pilot checked in with the communications base above Snag, a village in Canada's Yukon Territory. They mentioned ice on the wings. Not surprising, considering January temperatures on the ground often hit minus 16 degrees Fahrenheit in some places. They planned to radio the next base in 30 minutes. The crew waited for the call, but half an hour came and went. Perhaps the crews assumed they'd hit a small delay. After a few hours, there was no denying it. The call wasn't coming. The Skymaster and everyone on board were gone. U.S. and Canadian military officials launched one of the largest ever searches for a missing aircraft. A whopping 85 planes circled the Yukon for three weeks, slowly combing over 300,000 square miles of frozen terrain. Three of those craft went down in the process only adding to the chaos. Ultimately, the Skymaster was never recovered. Which makes you wonder, what happened? How could such a big plane just disappear? Others have asked more pointed questions, like why the government put together such a massive search operation. Some historians pointed to geopolitical factors. In 1950, the conflict between the U.S. and USSR was heating up, and Alaska's proximity to the Soviet Union meant it was a major staging ground for U.S. forces. 
With the threat of nuclear war hanging over the world, tensions were at an all-time high. Some people wondered if maybe the Soviets shot down the Skymaster to send the U.S. a message. Others turned their suspicions in the opposite direction, back to the States. It's possible the Skymaster was accidentally hit during a military exercise. The government may have been desperate to find the wreckage to cover up their own culpability. Then there's the rumor that the Skymaster wasn't, in fact, on a routine flight. Maybe there was something top secret on board, something officials couldn't risk falling into the wrong hands. And if it was still missing, civilians had a shot of figuring out what it was. In the wake of World War II, searching for crashed or missing aircraft became something of an extreme sport. Wreck hunters all over the world traversed extreme terrain in the hopes of tracking down infamous planes. In 2020, one man skirted Canada's strict COVID border controls to reach the Yukon. He spent three days scaling Mount Hogue, near where the Skymaster was last seen. According to the Whitehorse Daily Star, a newspaper in Yukon's capital, the man posted photos on his website of damaged aluminum aircraft parts. According to him, they came from the long gone plane. But his findings were never confirmed, and the Skymaster is still listed in the missing flights database. And it was far from the only mysterious aircraft to go down in the Alaska Triangle. In the fall of 1972, congressional elections were less than a month away. First-term member Nick Begich was campaigning for re-election in Alaska. Over the last year, he'd made his people a priority, improving public education and spearheading the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Some said the legislation hurt First Nations communities more than it helped, but Begich still had plenty of supporters. One of his most prominent allies was House Majority Leader Hale Boggs. On October 16th, Boggs planned to join Begich on the campaign trail. The night before an event in Juneau, pilot Don Johns touched down in Anchorage to pick up Boggs, Begich, and Begich's aide. Johns was a military veteran who owned the charter company the plane belonged to. He had 17,000 hours of flight time under his belt and 15 years experience in the Alaska skies. They took off at 9 a.m. and Johns checked in with an FAA flight service station nine minutes later. That's the last time anyone saw or heard from him. There was no distress call, no indication of an equipment malfunction. In fact, the plane had recently passed a maintenance check. Hundreds of aircraft, including a spy plane, countless volunteers, and scores of ships were deployed to look for the lost politicians. The search lasted 39 days and covered 325,000 square miles. The craft and its passengers were never found, but the mystery inspired a new federal law. It required all planes to have emergency locator transmitters, these automatically broadcast a distress call whenever an aircraft goes down. Boggs and Begich were both re-elected after their deaths, a pair of symbolic victories. 
But questions still lingered. Most importantly, what happened to them? Many blamed the tragedy on the weather. John's was an extremely skilled pilot, maybe too skilled. Others might have stayed on the ground on an icy day, but some have speculated that John's overconfidence could have inspired him to take an unnecessary risk. Others believed there was foul play involved, especially since Boggs was allegedly rumored to be a quiet critic of the Warren Commission's report. This was a document that ruled Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone when he killed President John F. Kennedy. By rejecting this official story, Boggs and his allies opened the door to any number of conspiracy theories, some of which fingered Cuba, the Soviet Union, or the CIA. Whoever was really behind the Kennedy assassination might have sabotaged Boggs and Begich's plane to silence them permanently. That may sound paranoid, but less than a year and a half after his death, Begich's widow remarried. But the relationship didn't last long. Her new husband, Jerry Max Paisley, was arrested on mob-related murders and bombings. While he was in prison, Paisley offered information about his other crimes, including his supposed involvement with Begich's disappearance. Paisley claimed he delivered a bomb that was stashed on the plane before it took off. He shared this information with investigators, who in turn passed it along to the FBI. It's unclear how much they actually followed up on the report, and this only sparked more speculation about what really happened to Boggs and Baggage. But as amateur sleuths came to their own conclusions, some researchers took another approach. They were less concerned with missing planes than with whatever made the Alaska Triangle so treacherous. A few came up with a solution that felt straight out of an episode of Star Trek. Coming up, warp speed in the Alaska Triangle. Now back to the story. One day, pilot Bruce Gernon was flying a small plane, his father and a business partner in the seats beside him. In order to get back to Palm Beach from the Bahamas, they had to pass through the infamous Bermuda Triangle. Bruce spotted an odd-looking cloud in his path, but there wasn't time to avoid it. With almost no warning, he was plunged into darkness. As the plane passed through the cloud, a tunnel seemed to form around it, illuminated by sudden flashes of light. Strange horizontal lines began to spin around the craft. When they finally escaped the corridor, a heavy fog surrounded them, and the passengers felt weightless, like they were in a freefall. Before Bruce had a chance to react, the equipment on board went haywire. He did his best to keep the wheels steady, but the compass spun out of control, making it almost impossible to navigate. Thinking fast, Bruce radioed ground control to get his coordinates. But they said their equipment wasn't working either. They couldn't find Bruce on the map. It was like the aircraft was invisible. Right after they reported their strange readings, or lack thereof, the plane blipped back onto the screen. 
From the aircraft, Bruce looked out the window and saw Miami Beach below him. Bruce thought this was impossible. His whole trip to Palm Beach was supposed to take at least 75 minutes. When he finally landed, he'd only been in the air for 47. It's hard to say how Bruce could have crossed so much distance in so little time, but he had a possible explanation. In a later interview, he said in the tunnel, quote, I was actually seeing the fabric of space and time. And according to some physicists, this could happen thanks to something that's sometimes called a warp drive. If that term sounds familiar, you might be a Trekkie. According to theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre, a warp drive could provide a method of travel where space-time is contracting in front of a spacecraft while expanding behind it. It sounds complicated, but when done right, warp drives could potentially let people move faster than the speed of light. Einstein's theory of general relativity says that should be impossible. But in 1994, Al Cubiere claimed he found a loophole. As the ship moves at superfast speeds, the space around it warps, hence the name. Picture a piece of paper with points A and B at either end. If you deform space-time and fold the paper in half, the distance between the points becomes much smaller than when the paper is laying flat. Now, imagine those points exist in the real world, and they're connected by a tunnel. The strange passageway in the cloud Bruce flew through could have been a warp bubble, a phenomenon that brings all those ideas together. It could have contracted and expanded space-time around Bruce's plane and accelerated it through a corridor of warped space. Wild as it sounds, in February 2021, Physicist Alexei Bobrik and entrepreneur Gianni Martire published a study. They'd identified certain situations where bubbles of warped space could appear. One month later, Eric Lenz mathematically demonstrated the phenomenon was at least theoretically possible. Even more shocking, four months after that, former NASA scientist Dr. Harold G. Sonny White released more calculations demonstrating warp bubbles could appear in the real world. To summarize, so far as we know, no one has actually observed an actual warp bubble in physical space. At least, no one with the physics knowledge to know what they're looking at. But the math suggests it's possible a warp tunnel could have somehow opened around Bruce's plane. He felt like he was in it for three minutes, but when he checked the clock, only 20 seconds had passed, meaning he'd traveled through time as well. It might be even harder to believe, but theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre thought it was possible in the 90s, as long as there was enough of the right kind of energy to push the plane through the warp drive. Let's go back to Einstein for a second. Along with his theory of general relativity, he gave us the formula E equals mc squared, where E is the kinetic energy of an object, m is its mass, and c is the speed of light. Originally, physicists thought this formula only allowed for energy with a positive value. 
But as our understanding of quantum theory has developed, science has accepted the fact that energy can in fact be negative. In Alcubierre's theory, it's the negative energy that's needed to expand and contract space-time around the plane. According to Scientific American, though, negative energy only occurs under extremely rare circumstances, and the levels are nowhere near what we'd need to witness a warp drive. As for the plane's equipment that went haywire, David Paris, a meteorologist and professor at the University of Nebraska, thinks that had to do with the specific weather events in the Bermuda Triangle. According to Paris, the region is a transitional zone where high and low systems of pressure meet to create massive thunderstorms. These storms break air molecules into ions, which are electrically charged atoms. In other words, they operate a little bit like magnets and can throw off compasses. The one Bruce was using may have had trouble identifying north and south. It's possible something similar could be happening in the Alaska Triangle. Maybe the Skymaster and the plane carrying Begich and Boggs strayed off course because their systems also went haywire. But some believe the ionization can't be a product of ordinary weather patterns. There might be something stranger at play, something that was created intentionally. In 1989, Doug Mutchler was posted to Fort Richardson in Anchorage. According to the Travel Channel's podcast series on the Alaska Triangle, he was a counterintelligence officer with the Army. When he arrived, he scanned the military maps to familiarize himself with his new home. He noticed something odd. One of the maps had a significant blotch of unsurveyed land. As in, the military had charted the entire state, except for this one region. It was just a blank spot on the map. Right away, Doug knew the government was hiding something there. But in his line of work, information came on a need-to-know basis. He knew not to pry, so he kept quiet for the next three years. Then, in 1992, Doug saw an odd report on the news. He claims the broadcast said China tested a nuclear bomb underground. Apparently, it was so powerful, the ripple effects reached all the way to Alaska. According to Doug, geologists raced to see how the explosion had impacted the Earth's crust. They found a gigantic, pyramid-like structure under the surface that generated its own energy. Reports claimed it was larger than the ancient pyramids in Egypt. Later on, Doug learned the news broadcast was supposed to re-air. He wanted a record of what he'd seen, so he taped it. When he watched it later, he was shocked. The story wasn't mentioned. He checked in with his dad, who always knew the latest buzz, and he hadn't heard anything either. The next day, Doug went to the station that initially aired the report. They denied ever covering the story. As Doug was leaving the building, a station employee allegedly pulled him aside. She said two men had taken the tapes with the report and instructed the staff to forget they ever saw it. 
That was all the confirmation Doug needed. He wasn't imagining things. The government was hiding something. And according to him, the Dark Pyramid was in the plot of unsurveyed Alaskan land he'd noticed years ago. The next year, Doug found himself at Fort Meade in Maryland. This time around, he put need to know by the wayside and went looking for clues about the pyramid. He eventually uncovered a file labeled Alaska. But moments after he picked it up, two men approached him and ordered him to put it back. Doug argued what could possibly be in this file that was so sensitive he couldn't read it. The officials didn't answer. They simply maintained that he couldn't. Once it became clear they weren't going to give in, Doug put the folder away. Maybe he'd find answers elsewhere. It helped that he wasn't the only person investigating the alleged dark pyramid. After retiring from the military, decorated veteran Lee Pearson moved to Alaska. According to his son, Lee befriended a couple of pilots. At one point, they invited him to ride along on one of their deliveries. When they landed, men in unmarked uniforms received the delivery. Lee didn't see what was exchanged, but he did hear the conversation the pilots had with the strange officials. They said the military was looking into a puzzling underground pyramid. Lee's story seemed to corroborate Doug's suspicions about the Dark Pyramid, at least in theory. Without confirmation from officials, we'll never know the truth. But in the meantime, we can do our best to understand how the Alaska Triangle impacts us. Coming up, a marathon runner vanishes in plain sight. Now, back to the story. In June 2001, a traveling nurse named Thomas Anthony Nuzzi checked into a hotel in Anchorage, his temporary home while he worked in Bethel. His job was just a quick flight away. When Thomas didn't show up for his shift later that month, his employer reported him missing. Unlike the cases we've covered so far, an investigation did turn up some valuable information about what might have happened to Thomas. The night before he disappeared, surveillance cameras record him at a gas station near his hotel. He was buying cigarettes and snacks. And Thomas wasn't alone. He was with a woman. After interviewing hotel employees, investigators learned she was in Thomas's room with another man. And witnesses said they saw the pair breaking into Thomas's Jeep the day earlier. Investigators tracked down the Jeep, 12 miles away from Anchorage. For three more days, police looked for Thomas before they finally called off the search. He's never been found. And oddly enough, the man and woman who were in his room also disappeared. Now, this disappearance didn't happen in the Alaska Triangle, but it wasn't too far from it. Missing persons reports from within the region seem endless, but one of the most confounding is the story of Michael Lemaitre. In the 1970s, Michael moved to Fairbanks to go to the University of Alaska. There he met his wife, Peggy, and never looked back. 
the couple settled in Anchorage and enjoyed all the great outdoors had to offer. Life just got more exciting after they had kids. Fishing, camping, hiking, you name it. Michael and his family were in. (laughs) Michael's life was all about adventure. He dealt with sinking boats, dodged bullets, and hunting debacles. He even earned a nickname, the Crazy Frenchman. According to Michael's best friend, they often joked that the only reason they survived their escapades was because they entertained God. In 2012, Michael set his sights on his next feat, the renowned Mount Marathon race a few hours from his home in Seward. Now, Mount Marathon isn't actually a marathon. The race is only about three miles, but it's more grueling than many full-length 26-mile marathons. The course takes runners through snow, ice, cliffs, freezing water, and steep ascents. By the time they've made it to the top, participants have gained nearly 3,000 feet in elevation. It's so intense, racers are strongly advised to familiarize themselves with the mountain before race day. Despite his reputation as the crazy Frenchman, Michael's wife and daughter tried to talk him out of it. The run sounded too grueling, but it was no use. When Michael made up his mind, there was no backing down. On July 4th, the men's race kicked off at 3 p.m. Two hours later, the man who race officials thought was the final runner reached the turnaround point. The crew waited almost an hour at the race summit to make sure they didn't miss any stragglers. Then they headed down the mountain. That's when one of the officials saw a runner making his way up. The competitor asked if it was still possible to finish the race. The official gave him the go-ahead and offered advice on how to safely navigate his way back down. The man was Michael, number 548. Hours later, Michael's wife waited at the finish line with bated breath. No one had seen him since the race official had. Eventually, the unthinkable began to feel like an all-too-real possibility. Michael was missing. Now this was especially strange because Michael was almost never out of sight. Thousands crowd into Seward during the Mount Marathon race. Fans line up several rows deep to watch the event. It's been compared to the Super Bowl. Even as they scurry up a mountain and maneuver through obstacles, runners are almost always visible from the stands. They're often photographed. The last picture ever taken of Michael was snapped at 4.30 p.m. It shows a determined runner with a bit of a smile on his face. Despite the harsh conditions, no one had ever died or gone missing during the race until now. That night, a crew went out looking for Michael. They found nothing, even after state troopers deployed a helicopter with infrared radar. The next day, the Alaska Air National Guard brought in a team of search and rescue experts with their own infrared-equipped helicopters. On the ground, volunteers and state officials combed the mountainside. A specially trained dog from Oregon helped. And when they all came up empty-handed and the official search drew to an end, locals kept looking for Michael. 
His daughter scoured the area for six weeks, scanning the ground for evidence of her father. She didn't find any. Eventually, temperatures rose, snow melted, and the skies cleared. Many hoped the summer thaw would reveal the mountain's secrets. But as one of Michael's relatives said, it was like, quote, the mountains swallowed this man. And he was far from the only one to vanish in the wilds. As the number of unsolved disappearances continues to mount, the quest for answers feels more important than ever. But there are so many dead-end investigations and cases growing cold in the Alaskan tundra. Some wonder if the real culprit has less to do with physics or warp speed and more to do with the supernatural. From UFO abductions to mythical creatures, we've only scraped the surface of the mysteries of the Alaska Triangle. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next Tuesday with part two of the Alaska Triangle. For more information on the Alaska Triangle, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Travel Channel series, The Alaska Triangle, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kim Yeged, edited by Natalie Pritsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Juan Borda, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs>